Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. For the premiere episode of In Defense of Ska, instead of bringing on a guest, my co-host Adam Davis and I will be walking down memory lane and discussing Flat Planet, the ska band I started in the early 90s that I devoted several pages to in my book In Defense of Ska. We were based out of the small town Gilroy, California, which is the garlic capital of the world. We went on a handful of tours, put out a few demo tapes, and had music on two ska comps in the 90s. Then we recorded a full-length album that never got released. In the tail end of Flat Planet's existence, Adam joined, replacing our original guitarist, Mike Vianelli. His time in the band didn't last long. First I quit, and then Adam and our sax player, Seth, went out flyering in order to replace me. Instead, they found an ad in a BAM magazine looking for a guitarist and horn players to join Link 80. Adam devoted the next several years to being a full-time member of Link 80, which would later morph into the band Dessa. Several years later, Adam and I formed the punk electronic band Narboots, which is still going strong. But most recently, Adam got back into ska by forming his own band, Omnigon. Today, we're going to pull our collective memories and piece together the story of Flat Planet. I want to start at the point where Flat Planet played its first official show, and that would have been the five piece of me, Mike, Alex, Eric Willingham, our original singer, and um, was it? I think it was Rudy. It was Rudy was bass because Bruce played bass and then he left. The the show. But I think the show the first... I saw you play at was with Bruce. Was it with Bruce? Yeah. Okay. So was that the was that the Playhouse show? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it was Bruce. Bruce wasn't in the band very long though, but so that was the five piece and that was the same five, five piece that was on the first tape. So right. we played a few like friends houses, but our first official show was at Morgan Hill Playhouse. And um, it's a really weird show looking back now because it was um, Salmon and Deftones and then like a few other local bands um, like Jigsaw, I think, was like a prog rock band. And then like um, Idle Hands, that was the other one. Um, so 
leading up to that show, like when I think about that was the first kind of exposure to Flat Planet, I think publicly. And I remember it was kind of, it was a lot of people there because it was all the kids because there was nothing else to do in the area. And we had to sell tickets in order to play the show. We had to sell, I don't even, it was like a ton of tickets too, like 50 tickets. And uh, which we did because I think we were still, it was, we played it in the summer after high school. So I was able to sell tickets to other high school people before we graduated. Um, but up to that, it was like Flat Planet was like me and Mike and Alex just jamming and just writing these long, ridiculous, like instrumental songs that were like 20 parts, like stitched together and were like eight to 10 minutes long. They're so ridiculous. And then like, eventually we, we, you know, Bruce played with us and then Eric started singing. We actually had like songs, but they were very much like in the vein of like Rush or Police or like, um, even a little bit of Pink Floyd, I think. So you were at that show though, right? Yeah. And so what was, was that your first like exposure to us? Or were you familiar with Flat Planet up to that before then? Um, that must've been my first, my first exposure to the band. I knew everybody in the band. And um, one, one thing that was, I think, kind of exemplary about our school is there were a lot of really good musicians at our school. And so I already knew who, mm-hmm. who Bruce was. I knew who you were. I knew, I knew Alex. Um, I think maybe Eric was probably the only one I wasn't aware of being like a talent, but he was uh, really charismatic. And so I, I, I figured he'd be a good front person. And Bruce had been in Dutch Courage, which I, I oh, was yeah, a fan yeah. of. And so I already kind of knew of Dutch Courage. So then when this show happened, Idle Hands was a band that played the Playhouse a good amount. They were just kind of a grunge rock band. Um, mm-hmm. So they they were fine. And then I remember Jigsaw playing and they were they were a huge bum out. They were like a dad rock band. And I remember like yeah. feeling like they were super old watching them play. I mean, I was probably 15 at the time, but they felt like they were in their forties or fifties. I mean, they, they were probably in their late twenties, early thirties, but they looked old to me. And then I remember flat planet playing. And I remember I must've already had the tape because I, I knew the songs and I remember, you know, dancing in the audience with my friends and having a good time, but not being super into the music. Um, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, really liking, really liking Bruce's bass playing. I remember being kind of turned off by Eric's stage presence because he was really soaking up the attention. Mm-hmm. And I mean, but the the music was it was solid. It just didn't didn't resonate with me. And then the rest of the show was, you know, then Salmon played. They were the local favorite. There were probably 300 kids at the show. And as soon as they finished playing, the entire place emptied out and the Deftones played to about 25, 30 people. And I remember they, they looked super upset about it. They played a great set and they destroyed. And, you know, the next time they yeah. came through, it was packed. Um, and it was only upward from there. But I remember, I think they even said something on stage about, about Flat Planet. Oh, really? I can't totally remember, but I, <laughs> I seem to remember somebody saying something about, about it. Did, 
Yeah, didn't they kind of make fun of us a little bit? That's I think I kind of remember that. I think they did. I mean, they were definitely a lot rougher. Like they, they looked like a lot more punk. They they all had dreadlocks and you know really kind of pro gear. I thought. Um, the one thing I remember, the only weird thing I remember about the Deftones at that time is that um, their singer used a rain stick during one of the songs. Which was weird. If Flat Planet was like, we were just out of high school, I think, and like, but I don't think we sounded like what high school bands normally sound like. It was too just like, it was very adult. It sounded very adult contemporary, and um, I remember trying to. I mean, I really wanted to dig it because I liked all the guys in the band, but it, it it wasn't it wasn't for teenagers at all. Yeah, what's funny, like going back to that band Jigsaw, was that like those guys were so into us. Like they were just like coming up to us after the set and they're like, you guys were amazing. And like Eric and them became like best friends. It was so like, I, I think back to that and like everything you said about them being like seeming so old and like dads and stuff. And it was really funny that that was the band on that evening that was like really friendly with us and super like down with us. Yeah, they, they came off as just, so super whack. <laughs> I mean, even just as a, as a kid who was pretty down with whatever live band you put in front of me, it just seemed so, I just, I, I just remember one of the guys had, I think he must've had sunglasses on and he had a goatee and like a purple, like a purple dress coat. Like mm-hmm. just, he looked like he thought he was in rush. I think. I don't think Eric didn't last too much longer. Well, I mean, we played a handful of shows, but I was definitely, I think I was getting really into ska. Skank and Pickle was definitely like, like life-changing for me. I saw Skank and Pickle, the gears were turning in my head, which is like, that was like, that was what I wanted to do. But it kind of took a little while to sort of get everybody on board with that sort of mission. And, uh, and obviously I think that Eric was not, didn't fit with it. And he kind of, eventually caught wind of that. And I think he bowed out for that reason. Um, and he, and he just sort of, I feel like he nominated Alex to sing, you know, I think he caught, he caught that Alex was wanting to be the singer that Alex had the stage presence and that he was like, you know, Alex sang a few songs before Eric left and he totally like really worked really well as a lead singer better than Eric did. So we did our, our, we played this like really shitty, like dive bar in San Francisco. It was like Eric's last show, but we did like half Eric songs and then half like this new flat planet songs, which were ska songs and like kind of silly, like, but it was really weird. Like, cause, cause I think like the two versions of flat planet are so different from each other. That it was funny that we did this one show where it was like, you know, all around me, all I see is sky, like lost in the sea and all that stuff. And then we did like these silly ska songs and like where I, there's even like those first batch of ska songs we'd never even played after that. Like, but it was, they were like in the same vein, like Alex had this song about um, head lice was one. <laughs> we had a song about, <laughs> we had a song about like being addicted to sugar. <laughs> there's like, just like stuff like that. So the funny thing and, um, during that time period, I, I was at a party, like a house party with Eric and he told me he was leaving the band 
And he actually asked if I wanted to audition to be the new singer. And, Whoa, and I, I immediately was like, thanks, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I told him straight out, but I was like, there's no way I would try to be the singer for that band. Like that, the idea of singing something like all around me, all I see is sky. Like when I'm a kid who's just into like screaming and punk rock made zero sense at the time. <laughs> so you had no idea we were changing. No idea. Them. I just knew that it was, it was this kind of adult contemporary <laughs> stuff that was not anywhere where I was interested in, in music. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I think it was like a thanks or thanks, but no thanks sort of situation. Um, <laughs> But years later, you know, when when Flat Planet transitioned, I remember thinking like, dang, that that would have been really cool. But at the same time, I couldn't imagine the band without Alex. And I think mm-hmm. I think I would have been too young and volatile to be a front person for a, a band like that. And I don't think it would have taken it to the right place because I didn't have any singing chops. I would have just been a, a raw nerve just. You know, it would have been it would have been a ska punk band fronted by like, you know, the screaming punk rocker instead. So the next time I remember seeing Flat Planet was at the Wharton's compound. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's skipping over stuff. Who who was in the band? Like that's that's the question to see when sure. it was. Who it was, who was the horn section? It was Eddie, Jeff, um, it was Eddie and Jeff, and then it was Mike, Rudy, and you and Alex. Yeah. And and the thing the yeah. thing that was interesting to me was that um, Je- you know Jeff and I have known each other since second grade, and and I think I'd kind of like lost lost touch with Jeff, and then I think that show was kind of my first time, kind of being reintroduced to him in a new in a new light. And I think that was my first time witnessing the ska punk version of the band. And there was so much energy. And even though, you know, it was a backyard show where the PA was just a couple of guitar amps with, you know, microphones plugged into them. You guys were on, on the next level. You guys sounded like a, a real band. Yeah, that was definitely the, so that was definitely when we evolved into what we were becoming like, when we played that last show with Eric, we we were basically a four piece band at that point. It was just Alex on sax, and he was doing vocals. And like, I feel like we might have played another show or two with that four piece lineup. We even like did some like band photos as the four piece, which I have them at home, which are really funny because we're all wearing like weird like thrift store suits for some reason, um, and we're like hanging out in like um, like the woods <laughs> it's, i don't know what we're thinking um but like we either it was either eddie or jeff i think it was eddie and then but whichever it was was eddie and then jeff it was like one right after another like we weren't really a five-piece band it was like we were kind of suddenly a six-piece band with the full horn section and then um and that was i think it was in like 1995 and uh we we did our first demo tape as Fat Planet, La Venganza de la Muerte. We went on tour. So that would have been the summer of 95. And I remember, I know we played like the edge opening for Skank and Pickle at some point in there. Um, 
So I feel like that was the time when we started to be, to play real shows and to do real band stuff for sure. Yeah. So after the, after the show at the Wharton's compound, I remember the first time I ever drove somewhere out of town was to see that same lineup open for Skank and Pickle at Palookaville. And, oh, okay. Yeah. And I remember I, I felt like you guys blew Skank and Pickle off the stage. I mean, just the, the mm-hmm. level of energy coming off, off of you guys and Alex, I thought Alex was such a good front person. And then Eddie and Jeff were just going crazy. Eddie, like to, to the detriment of his playing, like he was, he was going so crazy and throwing his trombone around that like, I'm pretty sure he, he was playing bad notes and stuff, but it was entertaining. And I remember being so jazzed after that show that, and, and also being such a novice driver that I ended up making a wrong turn leaving Santa Cruz. And I ended up driving over the 17 in the fog and ended up in San Jose and had to circle the long way around back to Gilroy. I really, really liked Eddie as um, in the band. It's funny because he doesn't like me and he still doesn't like me. And he like butted heads with me during the band too. But I always loved him in the band. I thought he was a great addition to the band. And I was super bummed when he quit because I wanted him in the band. Yeah. I remember um, when I, when I actually drew the t-shirt design for you guys, he, he was, had been out of the band already at that point, but uh, Vianelli's hand in that, in that illustration is, is Eddie, Mm -hmm. is Eddie's hand. Cause I, I based it on a pose that Eddie was doing um, in, in one of the promo shots. When do you, when do you feel like you were kind of hanging around the band more, like more frequently? Was it around then or was it later than then? It was probably a little bit after that because it was when it was probably right after I graduated. No. Cause I was, I was definitely seeing flat planet while I was still in high school. But definitely like the year after high school when I was just kind of floating and taking classes at the junior college, um, Mm -hmm. I think you guys were on tour and I was hanging out with Brian Wharton and I think we were pissed because you guys were on tour and we missed all our friends. And I think you had you taken Brian as a roadie once. So Brian actually was our roadie twice. So Brian, Brian roadie for us every time except our second tour. Okay, so I don't know what it was, but I remember he he got fed up that we didn't have a band and so and so we he decided as we i feel like we were we were just like we had hopped in somebody's car and we were getting a ride from like out at the outlets to one of the coffee shops and he had like decided that we were going to be a band and that i was going to be in the band and seth was going to be in the band and jeff was going to be in the band and <laughs> and the the interesting thing about that that you know that eventually became solution x um the interesting thing about that was during high school, Seth and I were not friends at all. Um, we had like a big falling out over a curl. And then that band kind of really patched up our friendship again. And it also kind of gave us this antagonistic nature towards each other in regards to music, I felt like, because we I felt like we were always trying to one-up each other playing-wise, even though I'm, I was not a good guitar player by any means at that point. Um, and he was a very proficient bass player, but I just felt like we would always try to play faster than the other one. And then, so it would make this really frenetic ska. 
And I feel like that, that carried over a little bit to when I would go see flat planet because I would want to dance harder than they were dancing and antagonize them to dance harder. <laughs> yeah. The, so I assumed it was like, maybe Seth was like when, when Seth was in the band, that's when you were probably like hanging out with us more, but that must've coincided with solution X as well. If you weren't like super tight with him before solution X. Yeah. Um, I, I know that, um, I know that uh, a bunch of you went to go see Voodoo Glow Skulls at Berkeley Square, and I didn't go to that show because I, d- I don't think I've had a, I had a driver's license, and I also probably wasn't really allowed to like go venture off to do things like that. And I feel like that was like a big catalyst for people, for folks in Gilroy to really get into ska punk, like finding that Who Is This Is album. Like I feel mm-hmm. like that shifted a lot of consciousness towards like really aggressive, fast ska punk. When the summer of 95, when we went on tour with Eddie, I was kind of just thinking about it because I know we went on tour in that winter. So the end of end of 95 into 96. But by that point, so Eddie must have quit like right after that tour. And then Seth replaced him. And then all of a sudden we were that that version of the band was Seth. And like what's weird is how fast that was, because not only was seth in the band but like we suddenly became a way faster like if you listen to the songs like if you look watch tour footage from that summer of 95 tour and then you then you watch like tour footage from that winter tour it's like we're suddenly playing songs like almost twice as fast we're like a really aggressive band at that point i don't, I don't really know why other than maybe we were just getting better and more into that kind of music i mean definitely uh having seth and jeff and alex at the front made made the band more aggressive and i remember people saying i never thought it was weird maybe because i I didn't have the music background or the or the background in ska but the three saxophones people were always would always kind of make face a face at that but i i thought it was amazing the the three of them together played so well that i i didn't think it really mattered that they were all playing a, a similar horn because they they were all still playing parts that uh it wasn't just horns all playing the same thing in unison it was it was well constructed horn lines and then just the frenetic energy off off of seth and jeff i know that you you would always laugh about it but they you know they would always like three songs in take their shirts off and kind of make a big deal about it On tour, they would like do each other's hair. It was really funny. They would just try to get that perfect mohawk. Yeah, they had those gigantic mohawks. I remember we would, they would play shows and I would come along and then we would go to junior college and we'd go to the music theory class, Art Junkers music, music theory class in the morning and their mohawks would be flattened off to the side from sleeping on them and we'd be half awake trying to learn about music theory. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think their energy was definitely a big thing because Alex, Eddie and Jeff, they all had a lot of energy, but they had sort of like, that was kind of more in that skank and pickle vibe where it was like each one of them was doing their own show kind of. Yeah. But Alex with Jeff and Seth, definitely. And I think they kind of got Alex too, is like, it was more of a, they were more doing, like working together, kind of like putting on a more of a together show. I actually remember Eddie come, talking to me at Gavilan, uh, telling me that he was quitting Flat Planet 
And I remember really not being able to believe it at the time and him. Mm -hmm. And he really kind of seemed off to me. He, He had just gotten a girlfriend and he was getting really weird and braggy about it. Like he was like, he would like pull like condoms out of his pocket and be like, guess what I'm going to do with these later. And, <laughs> and then he would, and then he was telling us, you know, how he was going to start his own, his own new ska band. And it was going to be like industrial mixed with ska. And I was just like, okay. And then he just kind of fell off the face of the earth. Yeah. I don't know why that never happened or if something didn't happen. I mean, I mean, a, a single horn like, player trying to start a band compared to like a guitar player trying to start a band or a drummer trying to start a band. It's it's a lot harder to rally people around, you know, that one person when they're, they can't be like the main instrument. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So, so how many tours did Seth do then? So Seth did, so we, so Flat Planet did three tours and Seth did the second and third tour. So the third tour was the next summer. So, so we, that was that 95, 96 Seth had, I think he had just joined pretty a little bit before that. Cause I remember, I remember like we met up when we met up at like Jeff's house or we met up somewhere, maybe it was at Seth's house. And I remember it was just me and him were the first two people there waiting for the rest of the band. And like, it was so awkward because like, we really didn't know each other at all. And we didn't like know what to talk about. And um, then we, then we did a tour that next summer, which ended up being our last tour, but we were like really, we were really working up. I feel like to just sort of kind of go to that next level to really take it seriously. I mean, I remember having conversations about like, like going like, I kind of, I, cause I booked the tours kind of going like, I kind of understand how to book tours better now. I think I can book us longer tours. I think I could book tours where we're, we're making money. I think I understand how to promote us, like, you know, get us on like radio shows and do in-store record show performances the day of our show. And like, I was starting to think more along those lines and the band were getting really into it. We did like a three week tour in like early summer of 96, but we were gonna, that was just going to be the beginning. We were going to start trying to plan bigger tours. And, um, but then Mike Vinelli quit in the middle of that tour because well, he was already in his mind, he'd already quit because he was going to move to Oregon, but he didn't tell us until the middle of that tour, which was just like such a bummer. 
Yeah, I was always under the impression that Mike left the band to go to college. I didn't realize that he like had quit in the middle of tour. He he went to Oregon because his parents were moving to Oregon and he wanted to be be there with them and and to he, he was going to go to college up there but it was more because his parents were moving up there. So he that's he had already made that decision. He just didn't tell us until mid-tour which was just like such a weird time to tell us and it was also like we were also kind of like fighting a lot on that third tour which never happened on the first two tours we got like i don't know it was like really tense for some reason like jeff was um helping me i used to do everything on the tours but i i i had these tours booked so well on the third tour that it was like every show, it was like a show every day i think I and uh, i asked jeff to help like you know watch the money and take care of the money but it kind of like i don't know if it went to his head a little bit but i also know that like seth and alex didn't like jeff having like a bit of power and they kind of rebelled against him and it just created this weird and brian too brian was part of that group the three of them were like rebelling against jeff and it was just super tense the whole time that's so weird i remember you guys coming home from tour and seeming really road weary already like i know it was only three <laughs> tours but but at that point in my life it seemed it seemed i mean i got the same vibe off of you guys that i you know would get years later off of bands that you know toured non-stop where uh you know everybody was just kind of looked a little bit beat down i i think it was like the biggest bummer for me was that like i did all the touring from book your own fucking life and it was like a super, just like, um, just a real, like, you have no idea what you're doing. You're just like pulling these names out of a hat and trying to piece together these tours. And like those first two tours, I was like booking shows while on the road because I would still have holes or shows would cancel. And I was trying to get us as many shows as possible. So by that third show, the third tour, I felt like I was starting to understand how to do it. And... Like, I just felt I did, didn't get that opportunity to, like, manage, I guess, the band and, and make us be, like, a, like a successful road band. Like, I felt like I, I, I got insight. Like, I got, like, I can do this. I can book us. I can keep us on the road. But it just, you know, didn't happen. So was it after that tour that you guys bought the bus? That third tour? Oh, I, I try. I, I I don't know why we would have bought it after Mike quit. So I feel like we bought it before. And then just did, because I know Mike also, what do you do the third tour in? What do you do it in Jeff's mom? So the third tour. So, so, (laughs) so the first two tours, um, we did two minivans and that was Mike's Mike Vinelli's parents, minivan and Jeff's parents, minivan. Right. And then on the second tour, we hit a deer in between San Antonio and El Paso and we totaled Jeff's van. Um, So then it was like, we didn't know exactly how we're going to tour, but then it turned out that Rudy's parents had like a full size van. So we took that full size van on that third tour. So we didn't actually have to have two, two vans, which actually helped help us make better money. Oh, so those first two tours, you were taking two minivans out. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I just imagine that you that you were all jammed into one minivan. 
no, I, I don't know why we didn't do that, but we didn't. We did two minivans. Wow. Yeah, that's that would make it really hard to make any money. <laughs> I think we broke even though on those first two tours, oddly enough, just from like merch sales and because gas was so cheap right. back then. But yeah. So after so after that third tour, Mike quit. So then you would have been okay, so this is the part I'm trying to remember. I feel like there was an overlap period where you were like in training, but Mike was still in the band. Is, is that how it happened? I think there was maybe one show like that. I feel like we played at um, Edinburgh Castle in San Francisco. And, and Were you at that show? Yeah, I was definitely at that show. Um, but I don't, the one... I don't know if I played guitar or not. I might have just been dancing around and being crazy. So that that was the show where Alex didn't play. Yes, Alex. Right. I think he couldn't make so it. That, did he have? Did he have work yeah. or something? Something was happening. He couldn't make it. So that was the show. I mean, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but that was the entire inspiration behind the fashion place. Right. Yeah, that's probably so. The fact that you were there was probably part of why you got pulled into fashion police. Probably. <laughs> I mean, also, I was yeah. still just hanging around Gilroy and like as as I was hanging out and as I was going to more shows and playing more music, I was, you know, improving at guitar and getting better gear. You know, that, that was the other really weird thing for me is I feel like everybody else who was a musician in Gilroy had the had the like foresight to try to have like a, a job or, you know, have some sort of discipline <laughs> so that they had money to actually have gear because I, I never understood that part of life. Like that you have to like earn money to like buy a guitar and like have a decent guitar and have your stuff and take lessons and practice. Like I was just like, I'm just going to learn enough to get by and be in a band. And then eventually I learned that that, that wasn't enough. So, but I remember we recorded the album, the album that Flat Planet never released, and you were, you you were there to do screaming, and you did like a violin solo, solo, and you were around when we did those photos at Taco Bravo. So, I, that to me feels like the time period where Mike was like, on was like already told us he was leaving, and you were gonna be in the band. It was is that how you remember it too? Yeah, and I. I feel like he just played guitar on the album because it was just it was going to be easier and faster to have him play guitar. Like I feel like I was already like on deck to be the guitar player at that point. Yeah. And so it didn't seem that weird to have me like do other auxiliary stuff on the recording, like all the backup screaming and uh, the weird violin solo that I guess Mike would actually do live. No, I don't think he did a violin. Did he do a violin? I, I don't think know. he actually would. I think he there's I think there's tour footage of you guys playing somewhere and he pulls out the violin during that part of the song and, and plays <laughs> like a noise solo on the violin. And I think that's that's okay. how that ended up in that, because I didn't own a violin at that point. <laughs> Were you there when um, we were when Jeff's mom played accordion? I missed on... that, but I remember it happening. <laughs> she killed it. She was amazing. It was like one take and she just laid down like an incredible, like accordion take. 
I remember feeling really lucky to be at that studio. I mean, that was a really professional seeming studio at the time. It was up in up in the yeah, was, Santa Cruz Hills and it was all like hardwood, yeah. you know, there was a break room that you could sit in and I remember everybody looking kind of I mean, like I said before, road weary and kind of wiped out. But I think it was just because everybody was putting a lot of energy into the recordings. Yeah, that that recording studio was called Mars. It was in Aptos, and um, that's also where we recorded the uh, the the very first Flat Planet demo, the the one with Eric, the Back to Botswana. Okay. The the owner of that studio was like a high school friend of my dad, and he's been in like th- that industry for like a long time, and he's recorded like a lot of the a lot of the like bands from the 60s and 70s like bands like doobie brothers and stuff there was like a like it it was literally a professional studio and he so he he like when they found out i had a band back with the original demo he's told my dad like oh they can record your son can record a a tape here if they want so we did that all for free it was like a favor to my dad and then and And then you um, guys were paying for the second one though right this we paid for that one. Yeah. I think we, he might've given us a little bit of a deal though. But I, I feel like because I still was, remember you guys stressing about the money aspect of it. Yeah. Well, it was like an expensive studio, but I don't think we paid quite the top rate though. Yeah. There was a period where Rudy was playing when you were in the band and then there was Rudy quit. And then there was Seth was on the bass, right? Was that how you remember? So it, I was, I was looking, looking at it over the other day. So there was a bunch of shows that I played with Rudy I remember playing it at uh, Club Cocodry in San Francisco with with mm-hmm. Link 80 and Sick and Wrong. Those are the only bands I remember being on the show. It was a matinee show. Sick and Wrong played before us, and they were disgusting and weird. And then we played, and I remember getting a super good reaction. There was like a big circle pit. I felt like it was the first show where I actually played decently. And... Uh, I felt like I could move around on stage and play guitar and, and not, not be terrible. And then, and then link 80 played after us. And then I saw what a crowd reaction was like the place went, it was like somebody (laughs) set off a bomb in the room. Um, it was a way different reaction than what we got, which, I mean, we, I felt, it felt like it was good. People were dancing. There was a circle pit, but just seeing, seeing what happened when, you know, a band that was from the area played was, eye-opening mind-blowing and then somewhere after there rudy quit and then seth seth filled in on bass for one show which he doesn't even remember doing and it was an awful show i think it was more than i think it was um i can remember a couple shows with which ones do you remember seth playing i know for sure he played at least one gilroy playhouse show okay um, if not both of the ones, cause we did two of them pretty close together. Mm-hmm. One with link 80 and then one, I can't remember who else played, but. So I think the one with link remember, 80 would have been with Rudy. Okay. The one after link 80, there was like a lot less people there. I wouldn't, I, I really particularly remember being bummed out at that show just cause it felt like there was like no audience and we weren't doing sound our best. And, but we'd been a band for what felt like forever and I felt like we were like losing steam rather than gaining steam. Yeah. And I just got really bummed me out. So then I think after that but, was probably that, that show at the Morgan Hill mushroom Mardi Gras, which how did that even get booked? God, I don't remember how, who, 
how that happened. Like that seems like such a weird decision for a, a ska punk band to make. It must have had a friend of a friend that was on the booking committee. That must have been how it happened. I just remember that show feeling awful. And I remember Alex was completely done up in his in his uh, Phantom of the Opera sort of get up. I mean, I think he had on like a tux with tails and his face was painted completely yeah. white and he was just melting. It was it was hot. It was super, super hot that day. And of course, it was still the time period where, you know, big baggy clothes were the thing. So I'm wearing gigantic pants and this gigantic baseball shirt. And I'm wearing glasses that I don't need because I didn't wear glasses then. And I just remember like feeling super awful, you know, like a, a combo amp outside sounds terrible. Unmiked drums outside sound terrible. Putting the drums behind the amps is awful for the drummer. The drummer can't hear what's happening. Seth was using his little bass amp, which was like a step above a practice amp instead of, you know, Rudy's regular rig. And, you know, he's also trying to play Rudy's part. So he's trying to play like Rudy, which isn't the way that Seth played. And then, and then the horns are down to two parts. So there's a part missing from the horn parts because they would do these three part things. And so then one of those pieces yeah. would be missing. And at that point, also, Alex's horn playing was getting really bad because he wouldn't change his reed. And so he was just honking yeah. all over the place. And meanwhile, Jeff's playing a little alto sax, <laughs> which doesn't cut at all. And that whole show is just a total train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like? So I, I remember... I don't remember exactly other than feeling bummed, like I said earlier, but I also remember feeling like I, I still wanted to do like a band and I, I had I envisioned something that was more um, two-tone traditional ska sort of thing, something more groove oriented. And, you know, and I remember just kind of wanting to just kind of start over and um, well, the way, so I quit. The way I remember you, you quit and I remember thinking I could talk you out of it. And I remember, oh, really? I remember talking to you and you being like, no, my mind's made up. And I think that was also maybe like the first time I ever saw your room at your house. And, and I was really kind of blown away by how uh, dialed in you were to like the whole booking thing and, and how committed you were to the, the lifestyle. So it seemed really odd to me that you were, you were bowing out of this thing that you'd created. I don't know. After that, I must've gotten kind of like bummed out about music and then, um, because I, I did not have a band until uh, Fashion Police, which would have been, which was not intent, was not, had any intention to be serious. So at all, it was, it was intended to be just kind of crazy. How long in your mind does it feel like it was between Flat Planet and Fashion Police? It seems like it was years, but it probably wasn't, it was, right? It had to have been under four months. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because so Flat Planet ended or you left and and uh, Rudy left. Seth and I went out flyering. I made a flyer uh, looking for a new bass player and drummer, which come on. And so we went up to San Jose looking for people. And that was when I found Bam Magazine, the copy of Bam Magazine that had the ad in the back of it where Link 80 was looking for a guitar player and horn players. So then we contacted them um, 
got to go audition, hung out with Nick. And then we were in the band. And then Seth left to go on tour with them. And then that was the tour. So this was 97. The tour where Nick left the band and flew home and the rest of the band drove back. That was August of 97. And then, so I was still at home. I was working at the outlets. So I, I was making, you know, $7 an hour, but I wasn't spending of it, any of it. So I was, I was saving money. And then I also figured out that if I, you know, <laughs> I figured out a, a way that I could steal money from my job. So I was, I was stealing money. And then I used that money to, to buy a decent amp and a decent guitar finally. And then when, and bef- but before all that, Flat Planet, or not Flat Planet, Fashion Police had formed because I was still using my little combo amp, my little Fender combo amp. And then I remember towards the end of Fashion Police, I rolled my my amp that I ended up using for Link 80, which was like a half stack. I rolled that into practice a couple times. And I remember feeling so when, like it was just like way too much power at that point. So with the first Fashion Police practice, you weren't actually in Link 80 yet, but you had, you had been talking to them about playing eventually. Right, but I and I'd gone to practice and I'd I'd practiced with them. But okay, they, but they they were in the same situation where their guitar player was going to be going off to college, yada yada yada. So I was going to be jumping in as soon as they got back from that tour in '97. So then they got back. Nick overdosed in September, and then by February, I played my first Link 80 show. And somewhere okay. in that middle part was uh, Bay Area Ska came out. And I I, I oh. remember doing the layout for that because I was working with Chuck doing art stuff. And uh, he needed the layout for the CD. He needed, you know, a two sheet layout for our thing. And I didn't have a computer or anything that I could do that stuff on. That was unheard of at that point for kids living out in the sticks. I did it on construction paper. And I didn't, I didn't even have two pieces of construction paper that were the same color. So I just had to, to make it big enough, I had to just tape two pieces of construction paper together. And then I think we blew up a bunch of photos and cut out, you know, with scissors, cut out these pictures of, of us. And I think I, I even used a really awful picture of you because we were all kind of mad that, that you weren't in the band anymore. So I used this picture of you like getting into the shower and looking all like, kind of blurry but weren't you not in the band anymore either at that point (laughs) well no not not when i put that part together because because we had to put that together months before so that so when i put that layout together was probably around the time that we were out flyering for a new rhythm section but then by the time the cd came out i was out and i was sitting at home one day and alex called me and he's like, I want to talk to you about this, this Bay Area Ska. They're, they're doing these shows and they've asked us to play. And in, in the back of my mind, I, I'd already decided, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll play these shows. Like, whatever. I don't have anything else going on. We haven't, you know, Link 80 was still kind of trying to figure out a new singer. And before he, I could even say anything, he says, you know, we're getting paid $50 a show. I'll, I'll give you all that money every show. And so I'm just like, okay. <laughs> and so then I was getting paid $50 a show. And then I think Seth and Jeff caught wind that I was getting paid. So then they wanted to get paid. So I think Alex might've been paying them out of his pocket. 
So at, at that point in the band, the, the, the only members that were in flat planet were Blaine was playing drums, Blaine Ballard, uh, Spencer Grau was playing bass and Alex was singing and watching, watching Blaine play your drum parts was really weird. Cause it was kind of like watching me play Mike's guitar parts. Like Blaine and I came mm-hmm. up playing music together and neither of us were very good musicians. So watching us try to like keep up was always kind of interesting. The fact that Blaine could even do it was kind of mind blowing. So we, we played those shows and for some reason, maybe cause I'd been playing so much more at that point, and maybe just because I had an amp that sounded halfway decent, um, the shows felt way easier to play. I felt totally in control. And also because I didn't care. Like, I didn't care if I made mistakes. Because um, it, whatever, I'm getting paid and I'm going to leave. I remember after the Petaluma show, I think I on stage at the Petaluma show, I was actually wearing a Link 80 windbreaker. And I, I left I left the show and went straight to practice. Like, got paid. <laughs> packed up my stuff and went to practice with link 80. Wow. And I remember being at the, the edge and playing and I remember Seth and Jeff, uh, like drinking on stage and they weren't acting the same as they used to. Like they, they weren't like rocking out super hard. I know that like the link 80 tour kind of changed the way that Seth behaved on stage. Like when he was in flat planet, he would rock out super hard and maybe it was just, those dudes at that time, they, I mean, they were all pretty judgmental. I could see them all like seeing Seth, like rock out the way he rocked out in flat planet and then being like, dude, don't do that. Or, or Seth just being smart enough to like pick up on the vibe. Like we don't do that in this band, which is, which is funny (laughs) because, you know, later on, you know, once I got deeper into link 80, uh, you know, we, you know, if you watch videos where it's just Nick in the band, the band kind of all just stands there and Nick kind of, does his thing. And then when you watch later link 80, we're all kind of going crazy. So it's much more like the, almost like the more flat planet vibe. Yeah. I remember, cause I remember seeing link 80 really early in like Berkeley and it was definitely Nick's band and he was just like controlled the room and everybody else kind of hung back and they all seemed super young. Nick didn't seem so young, even though he was super young, he just had like, um, he had like a maturity or just like confidence to him. That was like definitely beyond his years. Um, was that the show? Yeah. Then like, was that the show with Skank and Pickle and Emmy 30 And it was the version of Skank, I'm pretty and, sure, Skank yeah, and yeah. Pickle without yeah, Mike, yeah. which is so weird. I don't know, but I think it, I think it was a Skank and Pickle show and Emmy 30 yeah, show. If it was yeah. that one, it was the and one was... without Mike. My, oh, Mike okay. had quit the band at that point and watching, watching, Skank and Pickle play without Mike was like watching a giant robot with no head. Like this just powerful thing that can do rad stuff, but just has no vision, has no, has no thoughts. Like it just does the thing. It seemed so awkward. Yeah. It really made no sense to me. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Thanks. 
Yeah, I remember that was the Link 80 trumpet player, uh, Aaron. Was that his yeah. name? He was like 14. He was so young. He was so awkward. It was it was almost like a novelty how young some of the members of that band were. Definitely. I mean, that was definitely uh, a big a big part of the push about them. I mean, I guess with me and like the Flat Planet guys like Mike and Alex, I mean, I guess we technically started like sophomore, junior year, but we it took us until we were out of high school before we were even like a, a band that was even had any business playing a stage. I mean, playing, being, I don't know, being punk in Gilroy, quote unquote punk in Gilroy. I mean, it felt like you had to invent it for yourself. We, we may as well have been living on the moon all the way out there. I felt like it was, yeah. it was so impossible to find out about anything. And by the time something did actually happen, you know, it, it, it had happened and you, you had missed it. Like the first time I heard operation Ivy, it was only, it only would have been like 91 and the, what they were already broken up at that point or they were about yeah. to be broken yeah, I up. Think, oh, I think 90 yeah. maybe I think. So I, so I'd already yeah. missed the boat and I felt, I felt like that all the time living all the way out there and just, you know, even, even just, you know, the idea of fashion or, or how you play music, like, I mean, ska punk, my only influences in ska punk were what I was able to see. So, you know, when Flat Planet played in a barn with the hippos, that was that was how I heard ska punk. You know, hearing, you know, Skank and Pickle, the hippos, uh, Janitors Against Apartheid, the Rudiments and Flat Planet. It wasn't until I went on my first tour that I ever even heard the specials. And the only Madness song I'd ever heard was Our House. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember because partly because my mom was like religious and, you know, it was hard to get her to like let me go to shows. But the fact that there weren't shows in Gilroy made it even that much harder. It was like trying to get to San Jose or Santa Cruz was like that was a huge ordeal, like logistically and just in terms of convincing my mom like that it's OK that I go to San Jose. Totally. And so it was like, it was like, took forever to get like any like real access to like live music and a scene. Yeah. I remember piling in the car with friends and we, you know, caravan up two cars and nobody would know where we were going and it would take us hours to get wherever we were going. I remember trying to go to some house show that this band Wooly Mammoth was playing at when I was in high school. And I don't even know how we found the place we were driving around aimlessly and we ended up at the house and it just, it felt like, I mean, the only thing I can imagine it feeling like is like going to the moon. Like it, it, it seems like we were so isolated and it was at such a time when there was no real way to communicate. I mean, the idea of you guys touring pre cell phone, pre internet with no booking agent is unheard of especially for a you know a band that had no label had no album you guys were just make going for it with a you know demo tape yeah it's funny too because like we almost never played with ska bands on that on our tours like it wasn't even like wasn't for lack of trying i mean we tried to or we tried to play with bands that were similar but there just wasn't like a very many of them out there i guess so 
we would we would play with what was available which was usually punk bands or like weird alternative bands or you know just kind of oddball bands but rarely ever ska so i don't know i mean you guys did did you guys do ska like did you guys play with ska bands link 80 yeah link 80 was touring kind of during the um tail end of the third wave so there was a good amount of ska bands around plus we we kind of straddled the line between you know ska and punk and hardcore pretty well so there was a a fair amount of time where you know we we'd play one show i remember two back-to-back shows we played in germany we played a show with mark mark fago's skosters or something some real trad ska band with like a skinhead following and then the next night we played with Come and Correct, like a New York hardcore band. And that was uh-huh. that was just kind of the line that we straddled. And I felt like that that kind of perfectly showed that we didn't fit in either world. There was, you know, the hardcore kids hated our horn section and the ska the ska band, you know, ska people hated whenever we would play breakdowns or punk rock. <laughs> yeah, you guys I feel like I felt like Link 80 were one of the more uh, interesting and unusual bands. And even though you guys had a fan base and a following, I don't feel like you guys really got the the credit. And you're definitely not remembered, I think, in, in the same way that a lot of these bands are now, like looking back. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely a super niche band, especially because that you've got the people who only see the band as a vehicle for, for Nick, which he absolutely was. He was, you know, that 17 Reasons album you know, a big part of the charm of that record is, is his performance on it. And when you would see the band with him as the singer, he was incredible. No two ways about it. And then we have the section in the middle where we had a different singer who is ter- was awful and couldn't sing. And we ended up deep six in that dude after it took us almost a year though, to like, we gave him the benefit of the doubt for a year, like he'll get better. And then he never did. And he ended up being a, a jerk and so we had to kick him out and then we got Ryan and that was the point when I felt like we started to ramp up and we came out with another album. And then, you know, as we, in the time that I was in that band in the, I think it was f- five years, we did 19 tours and, you know, wow. never really broke even, uh, you know, started to kind of make money at the end. And and then towards the end, I, I decided that I was going to join Lucky Strike cause I was dating Liz and I was thinking we were going to get married. And so, uh, leaving the band seemed like a, a good idea. It seemed like a good idea to go join her band who had management and, and, a, and a label. So we, you know, I did that and then her band fell apart. She broke up with me. Her, their manager ended up being a shady piece of crap like most managers are. And then so I, when I jo- rejoined Link 80, it was only on a temporary basis. They wanted to see how it was going to go because they were all kind of pissed at me. And the, we did a tour in the UK and it went super well. But then when we came back, Steve Borth had already decided he was going to join the RX Bandits. And at that point, we're all super burned on all the changes and all the weirdness. Then we tried to do a different thing and it totally didn't work out. You know, that was in, if you remember the early 2000s, like 2001, 2002, things that were more synthesizer based, um, bands like the faint or, or refused were coming much more into, into Vogue. And, uh, it felt, it felt kind of goofy to play ska. Like we, Oh yeah. Yeah. We were like changing a lot of the ska parts in our songs and a lot of the horn players even were kind of resenting 
having to be the horn players in the bands. So everything just started shifting away from that. And the weird thing now is, is there's so many bands that fit into the mold that Link 80 kind of, kind of forged. There's a lot of bands that play more hardcore leaning ska punk. Um, but the funny thing to me is that, you know, uh, you know, a band like choking victim or leftover crack gets all, gets all the attention for being the band that, that, uh, mm-hmm. spearheaded that when, you know, I think they did like one album and one tour and then broke up. Cause I think their drummer went to jail or something. <laughs> I don't think actually, um, I think cause I interviewed Scott Sturgeon for, for in defense of ska and if I recall, he said that Choking Victim didn't ever tour. Oh, wow. Because, That's because weird they because they were I like, remember, all, maybe maybe I was hearing people wrong, but we would go out on tour and people would be like, oh, you know who you guys would fit well with is Choking Victim. And I remember being at like a place somewhere and being like, oh, Choking Victim had just been here last week and they were trying to hit us up for drugs and being like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's crazy. Well, those guys, he told me those because they were like, they were like crust squatting crust oh, punks. Yeah. I mean, they were so, they had nothing. They had no money at all. They couldn't even, they couldn't even scrape together gas money to like, to try to do like a first tour. But, but then the thing is they got like um, signed on what epitaph yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So they had that. So like a lot of people heard that record, even though they didn't get out of New York, but then they, they, they imploded before they were supposed to go on tour. And I think he told me that, um, they knew they were going to break up while they were recording the album, but they didn't tell Tim wow. Armstrong that. <laughs> That's shady. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.